Jason Guriel is a poet and critic whose work has appeared in such influential publications as Poetry, Reader's Digest, The Walrus, Slate, Parnassus, Canadian Notes and Queries, The New Criterion, and PN Review. His poetry has been anthologized in the best Canadian poetry in English, and in 2007 he was the first Canadian to receive the Frederick Bach Prize from Poetry Magazine. He won Poetry's Editor's Prize for book reviewing in 2009. Guriel lives in Toronto, Ontario, where we are today, to talk about his book of criticism, The Pig-Headed Soul, published by Porcupine's Quill. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thanks for having me. Why Pig-Headed Soul? Well, that is, it comes out of a, um, a Randall Jarrell quote, which is sort of hidden in the book. I didn't... I've, sort of felt a bit perverse and decided not to make it the epigraph but it but it is um it is hidden near the back of the book in a in a review of k ryan and um i believe uh i don't have it by heart but jarell's talking about you know in the future as people are sitting in their living rooms looking at the t at the telescreen it was actually quite a you know you kind of got it right you know people are going to be mesmerized by their their giant um uh, televisions, there, there'll be some pig-headed soul over in the corner, and uh, he's, I think at that point, I think he said he, they'll be reading Elizabeth Bishop, but okay. um, I thought, uh, uh, I used that, I, I sort of stole it for um, for my K. Ryan essay, because I think it's a good, I think it's an interesting metaphor. Yeah. And I like the stubborn, the idea, the idea of the stubbornness of a certain kind of reader, I think probably resonated with me as well. So, I'm, prob- I'm probably a bit stubborn. In pig- what sense, though? So stubborn because what? You're not going to just go and take in all the other kind of information that's available? Well, I li- I <laughs> well no, I'm not. I, I definitely dabble in. Um, I can enjoy. I can enjoy me some some pop culture, but yeah. I, uh, I I'm certainly stubborn and pig-headed about the the kinds of uh, poetry I read. Uh, I probably don't read that much. But you're stubborn about tastes, um, opinion, my opinions about things. So let's get to your tastes then. What what kind of poetry do you do you read then? You know, it's the there's a great line by a TV critic named Troy Patterson. I it's in my intro. I, I I think I end the intro with it, and he says something like, you know, the key to being Troy Patterson wrote for years for Slate. He says he's just become a staff writer with the New Yorker, which is awesome because he's a fabulous pro stylist. He should be there. He says something like, the key to being a TV critic, a good TV critic, is not to watch very much television. I think there's some truth to that. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a counterintuitive point. William, I think William Gibson had a certain, he had a certain take on technology that was similar. Like William Gibson, the great Canadian science fiction yeah. writer, coined the term cyberspace. Um, has written brilliant books about about the present and the, the near future, said something at one point, like, I try actually not to, to use too much of the technology. I think eventually he got into the internet, but he really held out yeah. on using the internet for a long, long time, and I think it, I think he felt it made him a better writer of science fiction if he was at a bit of critical distance. I don't read... So that's it, it's critical distance? What, what is it that, why shouldn't you uh, consume too much? Then? Well, I... I, I th- I think there's some, I think you get a bit of critical distance on it. To be honest though, I mean that's the sort of, that sounds, um, that's like the kind of noble intellectual reading. Honestly, there's not that much that interests me and I feel bad saying that sometimes. I, I love, I love 
You love the classics. I love the classics. I, there's a lot. There's a lot of contemporary stuff. I love. I love a Robin Sarah poem. I don't love poetry. I love, you know, reading a good uh, something by like a Pino Coluccio or A.E. A. Stallings, but I don't have. Um, let's say a loyalty to the medium, if that makes sense. I love one-off poems. I love particular films, but I don't have a particular investment in capital P poetry or capital F film, yeah. if that makes sense. And well, that's because so much of it is crap. Well, <laughs> what, what, I, yeah, sure. But yeah. how do you find the good stuff? Oh, well, that's a good question. I don't know how you find the good stuff. Mm. It you word of mouth or word of mouth. I mean, you you. You, you read a little bit, you know, often you read, you know, you'd read, I would read obsessively a particular writer and then suddenly I discover, well, they were obsessive about X, you know, yeah, and then that yeah. kind of leads you further into down the rabbit hole. I remember a few years ago I was, I was, I blogged for a little while for the Poetry Foundation when they, when they had, um, when Harriet was the, the kind of the, the blot, the sort of, it was kind of a feisty, contentious, interesting place. It's become more, I think, more of just a news feed now, but they had paid bloggers and I blogged for a little while for them. And I remember at the time there was a guy, I think his name was Martin Earl, who had put this post up. It was sort of, he put this post up in dismay and he was kind of like, oh my God, all of you people, like you just, you love poetry so much. Like I'm just not that, I, I, I like, I, I can be really passionate about poetry, but I don't love it that, that mm. much. And there's a certain kind of, I'm probably not the best critic if you want someone who's going to be your sort of comprehensive guide to the scene. Yeah. I'm just not going to be that, that person. There are people who, who, who do that and it's, it's, it, it doesn't interest me. And I remember he posted that and I just felt such relief. I'm like, is it okay not to, not to be that passionate about, about everything and have an opinion on everything? But I do trust or respect a poet who's widely read who for sure who can then determine what in their oh, absolutely. terms are is absolutely. good and not good for sure absolutely incidentally I, this brings up a, a controversial short article you wrote for the walrus <laughs> you talked about obsessing on some writers but write, uh, reading widely you thought was uh, overrated now i thought that was clickbait and a, a lot of other people did too <laughs> Can you comment on that, Pete? What's it called? It's funny. It was, um, I think it was The Case Against Reading Everything. I think that was the title. I, I think I, I would have preferred The Case Against Reading Widely. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, though. I mean, I met someone before. I, I, met, I met a writer recently who, who said, who'd rec I had never met this particular writer before, and I was at his dinner party, and he said, oh, he said, you're the guy who writes those uncontroversial pieces that somehow become controversial. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, this was a... a a piece that um, I'd been sort of tinkering with the idea for a while that that reading is about is about obsession. It's not about skimming surface. You might do that for a bit, but once you fall down a rap, once you fall for a writer, you fall the way. Yeah. And Michael Hoffman had an interesting point um, that I quoted in the piece where he said something like. When when you really love something, you it it's precludes loving. It almost precludes loving anything else. And mm. that there's a certain kind of. I mean, it takes up all your time. 
yeah, because to to me, reading, I, I, again, going back to the pigheadedness, I'm not someone who ever when people try to thrust a book on me, I'm usually like, no, I, I can't, I can't go there with you right now because right now it's about um, Peter Van Turn or it's about Frost or it's about Robin Sarah. It, it just I can't be there with you right now, and yeah. and I and I don't I, I I don't get the the sort of the omnivore. I, I don't. I don't understand that yeah. omnivore mentality. Yeah. I don't see how you could be, as you say, so much stuff is crap. I don't. I. I don't see how anyone in the limited time we have on this planet yeah. could would, would would bother with that. That's why I turn to a critic. I turn to a critic mm-hmm. to save me time. For sure. You know. But I, you're telling me you're a critic who does the same thing. I do the same thing. <laughs> so yeah. you turn to other critics, I suppose. You can't help over time. You can't help over time having a, a knowledge base, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I did a PhD, I, 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 but as as a as a way of being in the world, as a way of being a reader and a writer, to me, it's about it's about obsession. I really what uh, Roberto Bolaño's characters resonate with me. Those mm-hmm. sort of misfit poets who are just you know set out on road trips to find obscure poets who have written like one poem. You know, like yeah, that yeah, that is yeah. sort of to me. Um, that is what fandom is. That's what being a reader is. That's what loving literature is, is sort of about. Um, uh, but again, I'm 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 not I'm not the critic you should be going to for for the survey and for the logging every new debut and what's no, happening no. here and what's the latest Ashbury look like. It doesn't interest me. And I'm sure it interests some people. It doesn't interest me. So what should we come to you for then? Uh, I don't know if you should come to me. <laughs> to me, um, I'm. Do you have a, do you, Are you committed to being a critic or not? That's an interesting question. You know, I wrote this. This book came out about four years ago. The Pigheaded Soul. Mm. It gathered together a lot of stuff that I had been doing um, prior to that. Um, I was much more plugged into the poetry scene. Prior to that book being probably like from 2008 to 13, I was doing, I was writing a lot for Poetry Magazine. Parnassus was 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 you know still. Um, I mean that's that magazine's going to end soon, but you know you had Chris Wyman at Poetry, you had Herb Leibowitz at at Parnassus. I was writing, um, you know books books in Canada existed. Mm-hmm. Carmen Sternino was commissioning stuff. He he was one of the first editors to to really um, to sort of pluck me out of the void. It was an interesting time. There was a lot of really, there were a lot of good editors at the helm of some interesting magazines, and um, I sort of, uh, I was a lot more plugged in at that point. Since this book came out, I've written a little bit about poetry here and there. I wrote a thing last year about Chris Wyman and did a thing in Al about Elise Partridge, um, but I'm, I'm following my interest in other, you know, film and. As a critic, yeah, I mean, I've been writing some stuff of film and music, and um, uh, what I think people will find in these essays is that they're often they're sort of about they're ostensibly about poetry, but they're often pulling in references to other they are. things. And, film um, for sure. Yeah. I, I look back and I think I think I was already straining a little bit at the uh, the limits of the of the poetry review. The thing is, so so few people read it too. Like yeah. You, 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 you may want to expand your audience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I always <laughs> I say somewhere in the intro, I started out as a poet. I start, people started asking, people started commissioning me to do things. And 
I remember in the early days, I would often feel like, okay, that's it. I got to stop writing these reviews or making people angry. I got to get back to the business of writing poetry. But I, there was something in me that it's, maybe it's a pig-headed, the pig-headed impulse. But I always felt like, sort of, it was a bit of a Pacino moment of being constantly being pulled back in. You know, some editor would write with a tempting gig. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I will, you know, how much more reviewing I will do. It depends on the book. A lot has changed since The Pig-Headed Soul has come out. I find that the energy of the culture is not with reviewing. It's not even especially with criticism. A where's, lot of, where is the energy? The, the online, I, fe- I find, you know, I'll make, my, for, I'll make some gross generalizations, but I feel like a lot of the writing has moved online, and it's, it's moved into this, it's not critic. it's a kind of culture writing. That's what people talk about. I'm a culture writer. I do culture writing for Vulture. I do culture writing for Hazlitt, whatever. And it's, it, it, it's not quite, it's not quite criticism. There's a lot of uh, what I've, ca- I've written about this recently. I've year or two ago I wrote a thing for the walrus about called I Don't Care About Your Life. It was a car- good Carmen Stern, you know, title actually. But it was a piece about confessional criticism. I was noticing a lot of people were writing these essays and reviews that were like sort of ostensibly about some cultural product. But they mm-hmm. inevitably started with like a autobiographical thing. Yeah. And so the result, the, and often these are quite deftly done, but the result was something like a hybrid of like memoir and mm-hmm. criticism. I was noticing a lot of that. Um, I was thinking about like, what is this? Or we know, do we know, you know, where's this coming from? And part why, of it, why do we want to know about that? Person? Why do we want to know about that? And I think part of that was coming, is, has been coming from, it's the form of the internet. The internet really, I think, permit creates that space for for people we we don't have for good and bad we don't have we don't really have a shared canon of 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 reference points for the most part where we're you know pop culture sort of uh casts a shadow over a lot of what we do and that's also for good and bad there's a lot of you know i've written about some some things that you would probably categorize as pop culture but a, a lot of the energy seems to be around that kind of work it seems to be I, I wrote a piece not that long ago uh, about um, sort of this poptimist kind of criticism where people are bringing to bear great reserves of knowledge and style on you know things like The Bachelor and uh, Taylor Swift you know like the the number of incredibly intelligent people writing like very serious stylish funny interesting essays about Taylor Swift it's crazy I don't know at a certain point, it starts to uh, you start to feel like ah, I'm just not sure it necessarily merits this kind of this kind of treatment. And I'm someone who, you know, there's, I, I can like me a Taylor Swift song. I watch The Bachelor. I, I, I am I am a total I'm totally comfortable enjoying stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it's not necessarily what I want. Really, really, really smart writers. I'd rather they go write about. I'd rather they go write an essay about Peter Van Turen and Mountain Teen. Interesting you should bring up uh, Peter Van Turen because he's a, a kind of a, a litmus test for me. <laughs> I've read it th- the, the book through once. And typically when I read a book of poetry, I'll tick off poems that I want to return to. There weren't too many tick marks in that book. Mm, However, I talk to uh, critics, poets and critics, it's almost universal adoration for this poet. So what is it about him that turns you as a critic on, that my, or and a poet, a fellow poet, that hasn't turned me on as just a curious reader? 
I mean, there would probably be better people to talk to, like Zach Wells or Michael Liston. Um, I think Michael's even interviewed him. And you have to, I think you have to think about the context. So he was writing in the, I guess it was the early, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Um, there was nothing like that. Nothing that had that, that style and energy. Uh, the wordplay. The, the, oh, you have, oh, that's nice. That's like, we're looking at a, at a, a very old version. There's a lovely new signal. signal it's a version first edition, well. yeah. Just the energy of, like, the metaphors, the images. There was just nothing um, quite as deft as that. Uh, being produced and um, would I prefer him to certain other poets you know he's not like my all time favorite poet but mm-hmm. um, in the context of, of Canadian literature I think he, he was pretty unique for the time I think he still is unique there's a lovely um, David Solway has a nice introduction to the, the signal edition and he says something like Canada's not going to mature as a culture until we reckon with the fact that this is a masterpiece mm-hmm. I think that's true I think there's a lot of um, neglected monuments in in the culture, and, and that's what the job of a critic is. It's too, the job partly. of critics, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem, and, and and this is sort of old, boring, but the problem going back, you know, you can go back to the, the kind of nationalist impulses of the '60s and '70s, and there's mm-hmm. this kind of there was a need to form a canon. Others have written, you know, about this, um, but you know, at a certain point, we have to kind of go back to some of these writers that got left behind. Well, I'm going to give it another shot for sure. Uh, just simply because he comes up in almost every conversation I have with a Canadian critic, poet. Yeah. For me, it's Robbins. I, it's ultimately, mm-hmm. for me, Robin Sarah is the person. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And, and I, it has been nice to see in recent years she's gotten a little bit more got some attention that she historically has received. But I mean, to me, that is a... Uh, and this is the this is the problem. Whenever we talk about you know, talk about Canadian literature, like you know, the ad- adjective world class inevitably creeps in anxiously. But she really is that. Mm-hmm. She really truly is like a world class poet, which just simply means she is a poet that I think other that people outside of Canada, south of the forty ninth parallel, without a stake in the idea of Canlit, which is a very tedious idea without that stake, can appreciate. Mm-hmm. She's a poet that you can read with, read for pleasure. Um, and, and really that's what I'm, uh, what I'm inevitably looking for um, as, as a reader. And I don't find a lot of that, which is why I'm sort of circling back to, I don't read that much Canadian poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it doesn't interest me. I, I, I don't read that much Canlit for that matter, whatever yeah. that is, but people yeah. talk about it all the time. It doesn't interest me. The debates don't interest me. Um, what interests me is seeing some deserving people get attention. Well, you've said that uh, you need to honor, honor gut reactions and to be entertaining about it. And your operative principle is Oscar Wilde's art is too important to be taken seriously. What do you mean by that? Or what do you think he meant by that? I think that was my adaptation. I think the, I think the quote was, might have been, life is too important to take seriously. And I, I, um, yeah. I, 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 think, I think that's my adaptation. Um, what do I mean by that? It sounded good at the time, that's for sure. <laughs> I think I think the the issue that I have with how some people approach art, and of course it's perfectly the right to do this, but people both take it people take it too seriously. They impose given it, that it's they, there to entertain. Yeah, and I mean the problem even with entertain is a word that I think trips up a lot of people. Um, 
I think the ultimate the ultimate goal of art is is giving pleasure. There is a lot encompassed in that. Um, but I would say that people project a lot onto the on, onto art. They put a lot on its shoulders. They see it as kind of as a sort of social work, or they see it as needing to um, create dialogue, or needing to um, you know um, ref reflect a kind of uh, relevant or trendy political opinion and I think that's usually art that's trying to do that is dead on, dead on arrival. It, There's sort of an ulterior motive that shouldn't be in there, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I mean it becomes a lifestyle thing. I mean so much of po the poetry world is bound up in, in the universities. There's a whole sort of industry of professors teaching creative writing, mm. turning these students into professors except there's no jobs. But anyways, this is, you know, there's so many people that are invested in that world. It's, 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 it's sort of tedious, but ultimately it's, it, for me it's about pleasure. Poetry needs sort of needs to vie for the for your attention among other things, among film, among yeah. music. So that's kind of where I land with that. I think we we could all stand to take it a little a little less seriously. I must say I, I wrote that a number of years ago. I, what's interesting now is that we've really doubled down on that, but we it's it's that whole that whole kind of impulse, as, as I was saying before, it's really moved to the realm of pop culture that we're investing so much energy into. The latest Taylor Swift song, or the latest Beyonce track, or the latest TV series. Yeah, and, and and inevitably the criticism, um, the the focus of, of of the writing is like the ideological missteps of a of a particular cultural product. You know, is Scarlett Johansson's Ghost in the Shell is it racist, or you know, like that kind of like that's sort of where the energy of the culture is at. It's not necessarily it's not necessarily a bad impulse, and there's lots of great essays that. Uh, are to, to be written, but it it's the it's there's a sort of critical mass of, of focus on that kind of writing right now. Um, so you're saying the writing's good, it's just that the subject matter's got something to be. Uh... Yeah, but I mean, again, it's it's you know George Orwell wrote brilliantly yeah. about like Boys, Boys Weekly, yeah, you know, and yeah. those are like unbelievably brilliant, pleasurable yeah. essays to read. A couple of years ago, I interviewed. Um, Stephen Metcalf, who's a, a really good American critic, um, he, he does a podcast with Slate uh, called The Culture Gab Fest, and I did this interview with him. But his writing is, and his writing is fabulous. We were talking about criticism, and, and I think he finds some of this, maybe he finds the, he's had this ongoing war around Taylor Swift with other critics. But he, he uh, which I think he's, he's tried to back away from because I don't think it interests him. But he said, you know, criticism... One way of thinking about criticism, it's, it's trying to get at a thought that the culture won't allow itself to have. And, um... What does that mean? I mean, well, let's, let's think, let's, we'll drill down on that. So it's a little bit of an echo of something he had said about, um, he, he was sort of referring to Kenneth Burke saying, you know, one way you can think about criticism is it's, a cult, it's trying to prevent a culture from being too much itself. Um, if so much of the energy of, of our culture, of, of critical writing right now, is about you know integrating yourself into your into your review, so much of it is about pop culture. I'm trying to like probe at that a little. Like what? It, like why is why are so many of us writing about that? Well, we're so self obsessed. Exactly. So I think I, so. You know, a function for me, a function of criticism. It, it's not about being contrarian necessarily, but it's trying to get at. Why is the culture all moving in a particular direction? Mm. Um, why and so we, why is it, do you think? I, have, well, I mean, that's a very general term, but I mean, um, 
but that's a it's an it's just a way of it's a I think it's an interesting way of thinking about uh, what criticism is. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of getting at a thought that a culture won't allow itself to say, I think, is a is is a useful project and it's a useful way of thinking about criticism. Do you Why want to go, do you want to go there right now? With for example, what won't our society? Uh, what won't we allow it to say, or what won't it say right now? Um, that we're all self-obsessed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when I published that essay, saying, "Hey, why is so much of our why is so much criticism and culture writing and reviewing mm. a kind of weird hybrid blend of 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 memoir? Like, what is that about?" I wasn't Andre, Andre Alexi made that point some years ago. By yeah, the yeah. I wasn't, and the thing is, I wasn't arguing about. I wasn't. I wasn't suggesting that we all need to go back and be T.S. Eliot and be austere and objective and clinical and sound like mm. scientists. Impersonal. The new, yeah. you know, the kind of the kind of um, um, the new critical school of thought. What I was saying was, writing is, you know, if you write with any kind of style, your sentences have yourself is in your sentences anyway. So what is this extra layer of? Of self that people are feeling the need to graft onto. Like, what mm. is that about? Um, there Look. was such a negative reaction to that piece. It was shocking. I, I, relationships like friendships, like not let's let's say not deep friendships, mm. but like you know friendly acquaintances with other writers, like like were scorched by that essay. People. Um, were can people get that online, by the way? They can get that online. Whereabouts? Um, Walrus? It's the Walrus. I can send you a link to that. Yeah, but, but for our listeners right now. It's, it's uh, I don't care about your life. So if you okay. Google that and my name, <laughs> you, will you will find it. Okay. But <clears throat> that is, I, was, I was trying to get at a thought that it's, and, and the reaction to some extent confirmed that this is a thought the culture doesn't want to hear. Yeah. In my yeah. own, in the, in the, you know, in my own small space, mm. writing this thing, it was clear to me this is not a thought that we want to hear right now. You've touched a nerve, but what are you going to do with that? Like, so, so what? Well, I, th I think I said something in that piece, like, you know, it's a good thing for writers to be aware of the habits of mind. I don't think I quite said that, but. I, I said something like, you know, you need to. It's good to be aware of where the zeitgeist is at, because um, I think we're unconsciously parroting certain impulses um, at times. I do it. Everyone does it. And so, to the extent that I'm trying to do anything, whether I'm reviewing a book by an inflated reputation, or I'm noticing a particular trend, you know, I'm trying to sort of, I'm trying to maybe poke at that a little bit and 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 be a bit of a kind of irritant or, you know, mm -hmm. put some smelling salts. You know, the other, something similar happened earlier this year. I wrote an essay sort of critiquing this idea of literary community that we've, we, that the culture seems obsessed with, the idea of community. Mm -hmm. We genuflect before this idea where you look at different writers, different websites. It's all about, we're all about fostering community and fostering dialogue. I've always found that spooky and creepy, and, mm. and it's, it's not and it, about what a writer is or does. Yeah, no, and I mean the thing, you know, that that was another piece that really sort of um, 
that seemed to scandalize some people. Again, mm -hmm. going back to this person I met recently, he said, "Oh, you know, you write these uncontroversial pieces, but they suddenly, they suddenly, you know, they're commonsensical, and they suddenly mm -hmm. like become controversial." Mm -hmm. That there's something about that that I'm that I'm interested in in exploring. Uh, so, you know, why are we so obsessed with genuflecting for this idea of community? What does that mean? It's not to say that we don't have friends. It's not to say that, you know, I've seen mm. a few friends who are writers, but the sort of commitment to social media, to going out to readings, to like, we need to foster more dialogue. The people that are inevitably talking about fostering more dialogue and fostering community are the people like who are the first to brandish pitchforks, in my experience. Yes. It is the people who, you know, like Carmen Starnino has taken a lot of heat over the years. He's like, you know, supposedly Canadian poetry's greatest villain because he wrote some tough reviews once upon a time. He's one of the nicest, most decent people you'll ever meet. Yeah. The, the, to the extent that there's spirited energy, it's in the sentences. Um, what are you talking about? Well, you know, I, there's a certain kind of critic that takes a lot of heat for the ne writing the negative review. Um, but they're inevitably pretty good. You know, when I meet people, you know, people yeah. like Carmen and Michael Lista, you know, these are, these are friends of mine. These are writers I really deeply respect. They're very good people. Um, but um, when you're willing to write a negative review, you, you, often the, re the response makes it, makes it really personal. You say something like that in your, uh, oh, should I, where is that? If I wrote it down or not. Anyway, you, you, you talk about critics that are willing to risk their careers. I think I would say that what I've noticed over the years is that there's an interesting dynamic when you're writing, if you're writing, you know, and I don't really particularly like the term negative review because, mm. to be honest, if you are a working critic and editors are sending you galleys and they're assigning you books, Unless you're cherry picking very carefully what you write about, most of what you're going to get sent is going to be a, probably a best competent, mm. and most of it's not going to be very competent. So most of what you're going to be writing, if you're really going to be honest, is 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 going to have reservations, significant reservations. Mm. Um, Just simply because there's such a dearth of great work out there. If I mean Anthony Lane, you know, writing about film or something for the New Yorker, like I mean, it would be interesting to I would love to see, it would be interesting to see the ratio of like the quote-unquote positive reviews to mm. the negative reviews, but most yeah. of the films he's getting, he's he's savaging, you know. That seems to be that seems to be a realm in which that's okay. As I say in my book, it's poetry critics and politicians who go negative. Um, so I, I've never loved that term. I've resigned myself to the fact that we're sort of stuck with it. But it does suggest that you know, a negative review it's like, is, is, a, is something grumpy. It's some species of grumpy thing produced by a certain kind of critic who has a cloud over his head. When in fact, I kind of feel like if you're really doing your job and if you're, if you're really in the game and want to be a working critic, doing, you're, you're, you're going to have to file some, some reviews that have serious reservations. I guess, so, but if I can make one one last point about that, uh, I think the point I was trying to get get to before is the few critics that seem willing to do that, and there seem to be less and less of them. I'm not even sure who's who's filing that, that kind of stuff in Canada anymore. Um, but the ones that have historically been willing to do that, who uh, people like um, Zach Wells has done, you know, has written that kind of stuff. Again, Carmen Starnino, Michael Lister, they're not really doing much of that anymore. People that have been willing to do that, I've always experienced as as, uh, as pretty good people. 
what's interesting is the response to those reviews. The people who, the people who get really angry about those reviews, the responses are inevitably far nastier than anything in those reviews. Those reviews which are inevitably about, about a book. The response is often personal. I've had some really negative things said about me as a person for like mixed reviews, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So often, I'm speaking in generalities here, but the energy around we must have more community, we must have more dialogue, is sometimes coming from a space that um, does not seem really truly invested in what that might, might mean, because more mm. community and more dialogue might mean more unpleasant encounters with opinions that you don't agree with. And Which that, is where it becomes interesting for yeah. me as a reader. I mean, any kind of conversation that doesn't have some sort of disagreement in it is typically not that interesting. Oh, for sure. You've brought up Carmine Starnino uh, often in this conversation. And I should, I mean, I should say for, for the record, he's, you know, he's, an, he's my editor. Yeah. Um, I, I, but I don't feel particularly, you know, I remember once someone saying, um, you, you have a conflict of interest talking about... Well, I was going to get to that because you, you cite some of your favorite critics as being... Uh, Clive James, Michael Hoffman, William Logan, uh, Thomas Ditch, uh, K. Ryan, and it, as I recall, that those are those are Carmine's favorites as well. So, how do you? I don't know if he loves K. Ryan. No, no, not K. Ryan. But uh, but how do you dif differentiate yourself? And Ormsby too. He loves Ormsby. Well, I mean, I would I would point people just to the to my pieces. You know, Carmen is someone whose work I, I loved before I met him or knew him as an individual. Mm. Um, a lot of the, these writers are writers I've discovered on my, on my own or before I knew him. Someone once accused me of having a conflict of interest, and then someone else chimed up and said, no, no, it's a confluence of interests. There aren't that, you know, at the end of the day, there isn't like a surplus of amazing critics, to my mind, yeah. worth reading. Yeah. You're probably going to share some tastes with some, some people that you like, and you're, you're probably going to um, agree with them on some stuff. On other things, I don't. Like, I don't, I don't love Alice Oswald. Carmen, I think, is an Alice Oswald fan. You know, there's a lot of things that differentiate me from me from him or, or Lister or Zach Wells. It's all sort of moot in a way because, you know, Michael's not writing much criticism these days. He's really into long-form journalism. Carmen's an editor with The Walrus. Um, I, I really am not writing a lot of poetry reviews myself. Yeah, um, Zach, we're all Zach sort of doing either. Other, yeah, I mean, yeah. Pigheaded Soul was a product of a time where there, there seemed to be a lot of, um, it was just an interesting moment. There were a lot of really interesting editors, in, you know, at some interesting magazines. Chris Wyman at Poetry was, um, was incredibly supportive of me. He gave me a lot of gigs. He pulled me out of the slush pile. You know, it was, it was amazing writing for him. He made me, you know, he made me a better made me a better writer, he made me a better poet, he made me a better critic because it was hard to get his attention. He was someone with, with, with rigorous standards. He had a slush pile that was, you know, that could fill like a, a safe every month. And, um, it was an, and, and it was an interesting time to be, to be writing this stuff. I just want to get to the, your prose here. There's a, a short quote and it illustrates what I mean. Uh, at times, and I found this with Starnino's uh, second book that he published with uh, Gaspro Press, I can't remember. Lazy Bastardism? Yes. I felt there was too much poetry in the prose. The poetry got in the way of 
the criticism, I thought. And here, I just quote this to you. Like the prose is too 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 much style, too, too much purple. going on. Oh, yeah. for example, I'm yeah. sure I'm, I, you Ten can probably tension. find many passages. Yes, I can. I just want to say this here: <laughs> provides enough tension to make the cut count, enough cohesion to keep the chaos crisp. So, yeah, there was a lot of that in Carmine's <laughs> last book. Yeah, and it, as I say, it sort of became overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I am a sucker for, um, I will always err on the side of, of more alliteration, more metaphor, more style than not, and that is um, mm. uh, to a fault, as they say, mm. um, but I'd much rather read, personally, I'd much rather read a, live, a livelier, uh, you know, prose style than, than not, even if it's going to make some, even if it's going to, if it's going to over-egg things sometimes. Just in winding down, uh, I, I referenced uh, some of the critics that you admire. I wouldn't mind getting a short take from you on each one of them. What do you love about Clive James? Yeah, I mean, I can do this. I, 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 the list might be a little bit different now, but I, I, but, I mean, Clive James is still someone I really um, I, I love to read. I, mm -hmm. I mean, again... Wonderful it, poet, too. It, it's not going to be very interesting. It comes down to the sentences, you know? Like, mm -hmm. there's, there is... Um, I think it's pound. He says something like, you know, style is a is a test of of, of sincerity, and and so, you know, James sounds like Amos too. Amos is this big on style. Yeah, and I mean, I think James just his sentences are so are so good, um, but he also what I like about James is he has a kind of uh, commitment to to the reader, you know, that that the kinds of poetry that he writes about when he writes about poetry is the kind of poetry that gives pleasure, that, that appeals. And, and he, he writes about other cultural products too. And you know, he's written lovingly about like you know, old Hollywood musical and just the craft that goes into those things. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I kind of appreciate that about, about Clive James. What about Michael Hoffman? Hoffman is interesting. You know, Hoffman is someone who I don't always particularly agree with um, the, the, his taste. But I, uh, again, it comes down, for me, with Hoffman, there was a piece he wrote, the intro to Hoffman's book, Behind the Lines, I found very, almost inspiring. Can I say inspiring? I identified a lot with Hoffman when I was doing my PhD, because I read this book, and I was, half, you know, I was halfway through a PhD and realizing I'm, I'm not cut out for scholarship, I'm not a scholar, I'm probably not going to get a job, mm -hmm. probably need to go do something else with my life. And I remember reading Behind the Lines, and uh, it was sort of like a lightning bolt moment where Hoffman says something like, you know, I abandoned a PhD because I realized, you know, I would much rather, you know, when a book came in through the mail with a little review slip, I would much rather review that book than, than you know, make the contribution to knowledge that's required of a, of a PhD. And that just resonated so much with where I, where I was at at the time I was writing for, you know, poetry and books in Canada. I didn't... I, I sort of grudgingly would turn to my dissertation. Incidentally, uh, you reference graduate classes and PhDs mm -hmm. and dissertations throughout, almost in every essay here. And that, uh, when I read that, I thought, man, he's young. It made me feel old reading that. <laughs> did, did, did you do that consciously or not? I don't know. I think I spent so much. I think he spent so much time. I spent so much time in. Um, yeah, I wrote the. I wrote a lot of this stuff while I was in grad school. Mm. Nothing to do with my, my graduate work, but mm. Um, mm. I think uh, it came probably kind of came from a place of um, 
I mean, let me put let me put it to you this way: it's an interesting thing to be doing a PhD in English at the same while well, at the same time writing reviews and essays for more like general interest right. kind yeah. of audiences. Mm, yeah. There's a lot of jargon that you're sort of um, moving away from. There's a lot of you know, there's a, like the, there's the theory stuff and the trendy political stuff and and. Uh, a lot of that, uh, it sort of dissolves when you when you are writing for. It sort of necessarily dissolves when you're writing for a more of a general interest kind of audience. So, I think that I, I was acutely aware of that when I was in grad school. Because mm-hmm. it was like having it was a bit like having a double life. And it was also something that, to be perfectly frank, I remember. You know, I remember having this thought of like, oh my god, like you know, if I'm writing for poetry, they're gonna love me and and uh, I'll get a job, you know, and there's not, you know, there, it was almost, um, uh, it was almost a point against me to be doing that, this kind of work. That's not what my graduate department probably wanted me to be doing. Right, and interestingly enough, that kind of writing doesn't get you any raise if you're a professor no. these days anyway. It has to be peer-reviewed, peer yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that might be changing. But uh, So with Hoffman, I re- that really resonated with me. And again, mm-hmm. I mean, he's someone who's not afraid of having an opinion. I should have said that about Clive James. Writes well, probably overwrites, to be honest. I find Hoff, like there are times when I read Hoffman and I think... That just wouldn't survive, you know. That, that clearly that was written for the TLS in the '80s or something, because that would not survive like a, a, an online editor nowadays. But um, but again, a good writer. What about William Logan? Oh, William Logan. You know, I think people. Um, I think he's someone I read. I read less of. I like Williams. Williams work a lot. Um, he is. I don't necessarily love the things he loves, but but his willingness and ability to. To write the to, have, to I'm trying to avoid saying it. There's no other way to say it. To write that negative review, to mm. to to be public about his reservations. Like quite frankly, no one else is doing it. You know, mm-hmm. the the essay he wrote recently on plagiarism. On plagiarism, he, he wrote um, two of them. He wrote one for the Tourniquet Review about Jill Bielowski. I think that's how you say her name. VP, I believe it, with Norton. It was a th- thrilling, brilliant. Takedown of, of her book, and then he pivoted at the last third of the review to the plagiarism stuff. Even before he got to that stuff, it was mm-hmm. it was brilliant. No one's writing that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. Um, and then he did a follow up. He found more of it. No yeah. one's doing that. You know, people. Are um, you going to let that die? By the way, that's it caused quite a. Fifty-some writers, authors, poets. Uh, they were the seventy-two or something oh, friends of literature, which mm-hmm. was a capital F, capital L. It was a sort mm-hmm. of a. It, it sounded scary and spooky. Yeah, <laughs> it sounded like an. It sounded like an. Uh, you know, like an organization in a dystopian novel. But there was the. Yeah, seventy-two friends of literature wrote a, a letter in support of Jill, and then the second piece came out after that uh, about the plagiarism. And what's happening with that? I don't know what's happening with that. I I was. Um, I mean, I sort of voiced my frustration. I don't normally do that on social media. You, I'm a, you know, I usually just share links to stuff I like or stuff I've written. And, um, but I, I, for some reason, I, I thought that was... I thought that the fact that that did not become a bigger scandal than, than it was, was was sort of outrageous, actually. But I do think we've reached... There's a, there, there are certain kinds of scandals that are less sexy, they're less interesting... Uh, and this might be one of them. You know, I, I think of Michael's piece about the Griffin a couple of years ago. Which resulted in action. It resulted in action, but not from the 
poets rushed to the poets <laughs> rushed right, to be silent, mm -hmm. and they or they rushed to defend. Someone tweeted something brilliant. It was something like, you know, poets line up to not bite the hand that feeds barely any of them, and that was about right. And just to put in context, that was a piece that identified Griffin's uh, holdings in a, a, a military de or defense contractor yeah, and selling that, to Saudi. Exactly, yeah. and, and, and you know that my understanding, I could be mistaken, is that in, you know, in, the, in the aftermath of that, there were people who, they made it personal about Michael, okay? Um, but then the ultimate result, I think Scott Griffin sold his, his, his dealings. Mm -hmm. So people were, were defending this guy who then quietly or if not defending, they were they were um, trying to, they were yeah. trying to justify or at least downplay the idea. Like well, we're yeah. all tainted. Yeah. You can't escape the the, the, the dirty money. Someone's going to do it. Um, yeah. But but to me that was another example of this is this is sort of an old school kind of scandal. It's it's the it's the people don't want those people don't want scandals about powerful editors and publishing. They don't want these scandals about. Um, because about Griffin, because he can give them prizes, or they they might get a mm. you know. I think a lot of people were quiet about the Bielowski thing because she's powerful. Um, so what do they want? Probably what kind of scandals. Probably do they a want? book deal. Oh, you mean what kind of scandals do they yeah. want? I, you'd have to read Twitter for that. What are you doing uh, now, and what do you what do you plan to do over the next five ten years? I am around the, when this when the Pig Headed Soul came out. I had a book of poems around the same time called Satisfying Clicking Sound. I hadn't written for about four years. Um, I, I've started writing some poetry again. I'm actually working on a, it's out of character for me, but I'm working on a, on a very long, very formal narrative poem. I hesitate to call it a novel in verse, but it's a very, 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 it's shaping up to be a big, long poem in couplets, uh, iambic pentameter. So that's kind of, I started that last last f spring. My wife and I had a kid, and I was I took some of the leave and put him down for a nap. And I needed to do something. <laughs> he was napping, so I started this thing. That's kind of where I'm. It's really fun. I hadn't written poetry for a couple of years. The poem, the kind of poems I write, are inevitably very historically been very small things. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Um, I've got an essay. I'm gonna that I might work on that wouldn't come out till the summer. But probably, I'm, I might, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of always threatening to take a break from writing criticism and non-fiction prose, so I'm, and I may, I may do that. I've, uh, I may be at a point where I've, I've probably written enough for a little while and I've probably said enough. And, but I'm enjoying, I'm having a lot of fun getting back into, into poetry, and uh, that's kind of where I'm at right now. What about the next five, ten years? <laughs> I have like career plans. I mean, really, uh, this poem may, may take me a couple of years. So that may that might be what occupies me. Ten years, I don't know. Um, I probably have enough. There's probably enough stuff to pull together enough another book of essays. I may try to do that at some point. I'm not looking that that far ahead. But the the thing I'm working on is. Um, I mean, I don't know. We'll see where it goes. It's threatening to be bigger than, you know, my, my typically slim volume of poetry. So we'll see. And diapers. You'll be dealing with diapers. I'm dealing with diapers. I was dealing with a diaper this morning. So that's where I'm at right now. Well, thanks for uh, sharing your thoughts on criticism and critics and uh, 
talking about your book. It's for sale from Porcupine's Quill. You can go to porcupinesquill.ca and buy a copy. You certainly can. Find bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you.